every now I work with a uh, Bill and I have done some projects with a, a chicken plant in uh, Hartwell, Georgia. And every now and then, this chicken plant, they, I do some graphic design work for them and website stuff. And so every now and then, they'll send me an email that they want a flyer design for an upcoming wholesale that they're doing. And, and what happens is in the, the processing of these chickens, sometimes the chickens get deformed. The chicken breast doesn't quite look like a chicken breast. It looks like a, the 18-wheeler ran over it and flattened it, and it's... And it's not something that this company wants to present to the public for sale. And so they'll gather up all of this bulk, they'll put them in boxes, and they will sell them for a very good deal. So as long as you're okay with deformed chickens, you know, it's, it's great. And we usually do go and buy some. But I thought about this because they refuse to sell this to the public because... It doesn't represent their company well. It doesn't put a good face on their company to represent chicken that's, you know, flattened beyond recognition. You would never know that it was a chicken breast. And it made me think of a text that I read recently at morning prayer, Malachi 1, which we're going to read tonight. And God really began to speak to me and deal with me about a spirit of excellence is what I want to preach about tonight. Malachi 1, we're going to read verses 6 through 8. And then I encourage you open to Daniel, because we're going to look at a number of scriptures there. There's a little bit of feedback coming from over here. Malachi 1, 6 through 8. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts to you priests, who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. And in this text, God is rebuking his people. More specifically, God is addressing the priests. And God is laying a heavy charge at their feet. He is saying that you are making offerings to me that do not honor me. They are going through the motions of making sacrifices. They are going through the motions of carrying out their duties to honor God by sacrifices. But God is looking at these sacrifices and he is saying, these sacrifices do not honor me. These sacrifices do not represent that you value me, that you reverence and revere me, that you respect me as your father and your master. It reveals that they have come to a place where they do not have a proper reverence, a proper respect, a proper honor for the God of heaven. They are going through the motions. They are seemingly carrying out their duties, but they are doing it in a way that is not honoring God. And in fact, it is dishonoring him. God says to them, look at what you're offering me. Would your governor be pleased with this offering? Would your governor be pleased with this three-legged goat that you're offering me? Would he be pleased with this three-eyed goat 
that you don't want anyway and you're just trying to get rid of? Would he be pleased with that? Then why in the world do you think God would be pleased with that? And as I read this text the other morning, God began to aim the bullseye right back at me. And I'm thinking, yeah, those priests, man, those devils. But then God began to ask me some of these questions. Began to ask me what kind of sacrifice and what kind of service am I offering to God? In my marriage, in my responsibility of parenting, in children's church, with video ministry, fill in the blank. Whatever area of life where God is seeking to use you, whatever area that you are offering to God in service, God began to ask me, what kind of sacrifices am I offering? Am I offering three-legged goats instead of giving my best? So the sermon that I'm preaching tonight, I'm using that thought process as a launching point, and really I'm preaching to myself, and I hope that it helps you guys too. I don't want to preach about excellence in our service to God. Vocabulary.com describes excellence as it means greatness, the very best. Achieving excellence is never easy to do. Excellence is a quality that people really appreciate because it is so hard to find. Excellence is the quality of excelling, of being truly the best at something. Getting an A-plus shows excellence. I never got many of those. Michael Jordan, sorry, said. Michael Jordan's basketball career was filled with excellence. We love Picasso and Shakespeare for their excellence. When you see excellence, you should appreciate the work that went into it. So much in the world falls short of excellence. And how many believe with me tonight that God is worthy of excellence? I want to look at this tonight. I want to first look at the beginning of excellence. And we're going to look at some examples in Scripture, specifically through the book of Daniel, because there are some tremendous examples in the book of Daniel of excellence. Daniel 1, verses 3 through 5. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. And no doubt this this story is familiar to anyone that's been been saved for very long. You've no doubt heard sermons about Daniel and, and the scenario that's going on here. But King Nebuchadnezzar has just captured Jerusalem, has has taken back captive most of the people of God. And he is specifically seeking out these young men so that they could become advisors, they could become counselors, they could become those that would offer the king assistance in running the kingdom of Babylon. They were going to train these gifted men. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these are four specific young men that are mentioned in this text. You probably know these better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Their name was changed once they were in Babylon, but this is their Jewish, their Hebrew name. These are teenagers that are forcibly removed from their home. As Nebuchadnezzar has taken over and conquered this land, he is now removing these teenagers and taking them back to a foreign land, taking them away from their parents, taking them away from everything that was familiar, from all of their friends, all of their surroundings that they knew and were accustomed to. All of that is gone. All of their childhood relationships gone. And now they find themselves captive in this pagan land filled with immorality, filled with idolatry, filled with all of the things their parents taught them to fight against and to stay away from. Now here they are being forced to live as slaves in this place. But these four individuals seem to get the cushy assignment because of the favor that they had, because of the giftings that they had, they actually weren't taken to the slave camps. They weren't taken to the labor camps and, and given the difficult jobs. But these four individuals were taken to the king's palace. They were going to receive all of the best treatment, the best food, the best clothing, the best comforts that were available in that time, the education, the provisions. Basically, whatever these young men needed in order to grow and to develop and to become productive and prosperous young men, they had it. It was available to them. Because these young men were seen as an investment into the Babylonian kingdom. The king was investing in preparing these men for his purposes. And right away in this strange pagan land, it becomes clear to Daniel and his homies, we'll call them. It becomes very clear to them that they are going to have a difficult time living for God. Verse 5 says, The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And there are numerous reasons that we could, we could catalog in detail for why Daniel has to make this stand, but for the sake of time, just suffice it to say that in order for Daniel and his homies to eat this food, and to partake of the king's food and to participate in that would have been a violation of God's commandments. So right here, right out of the gate, these young men are faced with a very difficult choice. They can either compromise and go along with what the king is asking them to do, go along with what is being expected of them and what all of their friends are doing. All these other young men, we don't read about any of them resisting this. So they can either go along with everyone else or they can make a stand for what they know God wants them to do. They can choose to obey God and say no. Now remember, these are teenagers. 13 to 17 year old kids that have been taken away from everything familiar to them, away from their families, away from everything that they knew, away from their places of worship. They are thrust into this very difficult situation, this pagan monarchy under a pagan king that is notoriously wicked and violent. It would be very easy for them to just respond in this situation and compromise and go with the flow. Don't shake the boat. Don't ruffle any feathers. Surely God will understand. 
It would be easy for them to also respond out of anger toward God. God, why did you let this happen to us? God, why are you doing this to us? And instead of responding with a heart of obedience to God, they could have responded with a heart of bitterness toward God. God, why? You're not going to help me then forget you. But Daniel and his three friends made up their minds that they were not going to compromise. They were not going to be a part of this. They would not partake in the king's food. Daniel 1 verse 8 says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel and his three friends decide they're going to make this stand. A purpose within themselves that we will not do this. We will not compromise. Does not matter that everyone else here is doing it. We're not going to do it. And this is the beginning of a life of excellence for these young men because they chose to honor and obey God and they made that their top priority regardless of the cost. They had no idea how this was going to turn out. They had no idea what was going to be the outcome of this. Essentially, they were defying King Nebuchadnezzar. King said, you're going to eat this, and they're saying no. That usually doesn't turn out well in a monarchy. That usually doesn't turn out well. King Nebuchadnezzar at one point took a king that he had captured, a king of Judah, I believe it was. He brought all of his kids in front of them, killed all of his sons right in front of him, and then gouged out his eyes so that that would be the last thing he'd see. That's the same king that these guys are saying, no, we're not going to eat that. But they didn't care. Their top priority, their chief concern was obey God, trust God. And because they chose to honor God, God got involved supernaturally. They, they offered this uh, way out. They talked to Ashpenaz. They said, hey, how about let us eat this food, these vegetables here, while everyone else eats that, and then you just compare and see if we still look healthy and fine. How about we just keep eating this and honoring our God? He said, fine, I'll give you 10 days. Now, you could ask Mandy, but I don't, think, I don't know that 10 days of eating one food versus another is going to make a significantly uh, distinguishing difference in how someone looks. Is that fair to say? She doesn't look like she really believes that. (laughs) For purposes of this sermon, let's say, I don't think 10 days would make a huge difference. But because they made this stand, when this 10 days had passed, Verse 14 and 15 says, He consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. I believe that God got involved here. I believe that there was a supernatural anointing upon their lives that caused them to look better, that caused them to glow. How many have seen that before? You see somebody that has been touched by God, somebody that has the anointing, there's almost a glow about them. That's what happened here. They honored God and God honored them and allowed them to continue in that way so they never had to eat that food. They never had to defile themselves. 
Because they made this stand, they continued to honor God, and God blessed them. Daniel 1, 17 through 20. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Now, I'm not suggesting that God just waved a magic wand over them and just, you know, by osmosis deposited all of this wisdom and knowledge and intellect into them. But what I am saying is that because they chose to honor God, they put in the hard work, the studying, they did all that was expected of them, but God worked with them and blessed those efforts. God caused those efforts to prosper them ten times more than anybody else. They worked hard, but God was involved, and God blessed it. And God did something supernatural on their behalf. So I'm not saying that excellence is something that's going to happen just because God waves his wand over you. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to put in the time. You're going to have to use diligence and, and give yourself to whatever God is calling you to. But when you live a life that honors God, God gets involved in those efforts and God causes them to prosper supernaturally. Let's look at sustaining of excellence. Pastor Hurl just preached last Sunday about the danger of not finishing the race. And of course, this is a real danger when it comes to salvation, but this is also a danger when it comes to ministry. This is a danger when it comes to the call of God and the destiny that God has for your life, how many times do people start well but don't finish? King Saul started well, but he did not finish. Gehazi, Judas, Demas, no doubt many other examples in Scripture and many other examples that we have seen just in our own experience in this church. So sustaining the spirit of excellence. In our text, dealing with Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, obviously they started well in their walk with God. They started well in their service in the kingdom of Babylon. They started with this spirit of excellence, but what makes their story so compelling and so powerful is that it didn't stop there. This excellence was sustained throughout all that we know of them. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream, he tells all the wise men, either you tell me my dream and what it means or you're all dead meat. And so the time comes when literally they're all about to be executed. Daniel and his homies cry out to God. They begin to pray and say, God, help us. God, what is the dream and what does it mean? They're relying on God to help them. And in Daniel chapter 2, instead of being executed, verse 48 and 49 says, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. They cried out to God, 
God answered their request, gave Daniel the dream, gave him the interpretation, and because God got involved, these guys, instead of being executed, they were promoted. They were put in places of leadership and authority in the kingdom of Babylon. In Daniel 3, we read about the three Hebrew boys. This very well-known story. Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that, if that is the case, let me back up. What this is talking about, some people may not know. So what this is talking about is King Nebuchadnezzar decided he wanted to have a statue to represent how great and awesome he is. So he builds this ginormous golden statue of himself and he tells everyone in his kingdom, when the music plays, you are to bow down and worship the golden statue. Obviously, that's a problem for God's people. And so the three Hebrew boys said, no, we're not going to do it. The music plays. Everybody else bows down except for these three boys. And then the word gets back to the king. He calls them before him. And that's what we're reading in our text is when the king is, the Bible says he's in a rage as he's addressing them. Verse 16 again says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Think about that. Here, these three guys, they're slaves in the land. They're serving in places of authority and honor, but they're slaves. They're Hebrews brought in from another nation, and they're defying the king. They're standing right before him saying, we will not serve your gods. You can throw us in the fiery furnace, but God can deliver us if he wants to, but even if he doesn't, we are not serving your gods. These guys trusted God. These guys were bold. Their top priority was, what does God want me to do? And I'm going to do it. I'm going to honor God. There was an excellence about them. They were more concerned about obeying God than anything else that may happen to them. And it's easy for us to say that we would do the same thing, and I hope that we would. But we're reading the story, and we know the final outcome. They didn't know the final outcome. Obvious by their statement where they said, God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bound down. They couldn't read ahead and find out what was going to happen. How many of you know Choose Your Own Adventure books? Those were one of the very few books that I actually read growing up. I love those books. You know, you, you make a choice, you turn to this page, and if you screw up, well, you just go back and you try, okay, it should, I guess it's this one. They didn't have that option. They didn't have a choose-your-own-adventure book that they were following. This was real life. And we know the end result. God did miraculously step in and deliver them. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, but they're not touched by the flames. God miraculously delivers them because these three guys, again, they had chosen to honor God and put his honor and his reverence and his word and his will above everything else, no matter the consequence. 
And in Daniel chapter 6, we read the testimony of Daniel himself while serving under the third king. He served under four different kings while he was there as as a captive in the land. He has probably been there about 50 years at this point, 50 years serving in Babylon. As we read in Daniel 6, 3 and 4, says, Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. See, the governors and the leaders looked at this man. They saw the favor that was on him. They saw that he, he was being elevated to a place where he was going to be in charge of everything. And they didn't like it. They were jealous and they began to look for a way to try and set him up. A way to come up with some strategy or scheme to to take him out. And think of that. After 50 years of serving in public office, they could not find one thing against him. Not one compromise. Not one area where they could point to and say, see... And so they tricked the king into passing a law that made it illegal to pray because they knew the only way they were going to get Daniel is if they somehow turned his faithfulness to God against him. And so that's what they did. They tricked the king. The king was duped into signing a law that made it illegal to pray to anyone except the king himself for 30 days because they knew Daniel was going to pray every day because that's what Daniel did. Every day, Daniel communed with God in prayer. And once Daniel heard about this law, he had a choice. Now think about that. This law was only in effect for 30 days. It wasn't a permanent law. It was just 30 days. Daniel could very easily have said, well, okay, well, it's only 30 days. No big deal. You know, I'll read the scriptures. I just won't pray. I'll just wait after. Surely God understands. God's put me in this place. God God wants me here. God's using me here. Surely God doesn't want me to do anything that might jeopardize this. These are the kind of thoughts that could lead him to a place where he would compromise and say, well, it's only 30 days. No big deal. But thank God that's not what Daniel did. The Bible tells us that when Daniel was aware of this law, He went to his house, he opened his windows, and he prayed just like he always did. He did not allow this law to restrict the law of God working in his life. He knew what God wanted him to do, and that was most important. He did the will of God regardless of what consequences may come. And once again, we know the story that God intervened on Daniel's behalf as he was taken thrown into the lion's den for this act of disobedience, but God supernaturally stepped in once again, and God protected him against those lions, and they did not harm him. He came out the next morning completely unscathed. And Daniel 6 basically concludes the narrative of Daniel's time in Babylon. Chapters 7 through 12 are just basically going through the various visions and and dreams that Daniel had, the prophecies that he received. But Daniel 1 through 6 is cataloging the life of Daniel while he's there in Babylon, the three Hebrew boys, and everything that we read about these guys shows a spirit of excellence. 
It shows an excellence about their service to God, an excellence about their desire to please God, their desire to put God first, no matter what the consequence, no matter what anyone else was doing, they were going to remain faithful. And thank God for that example. I want to look last at the formula for excellence. You know, I was reading about the formula for Coca-Cola. How many have seen the vault in Atlanta where that, they say that that is stored? Whether it's in there or not, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But the secret formula for Coke is supposedly stored in that vault in the Coca-Cola Museum in Atlanta. I was reading about the fact that there are only two people at any given time within the company that actually know the full formula. Those two people are not allowed to travel together. When one of them is moving on, I guess, either away from Coke or gets taken out, I don't know, but they have to, they pass that on. There's a successor that receives the full formula for Coca-Cola and how to mix it. They're not allowed to travel together in case something happens. They don't both die. But unfortunately, you know, the formula for excellence is not like the formula for Coke, where it's just as long as you get all the right components, you get all the right ingredients, and you just happen to mix them all together just right, bam, you've got excellence. It's not quite like that. I wish it were. I wish we could just write out a formula and you just do this simple thing, and you're set for life, man, excellence. It's not that easy. But at the same time, you know, the formula for excellence is not locked in a vault somewhere. It's not only available to two people on planet Earth. The formula for excellence is found in God's word. The formula for excellence is available to anyone that will pursue it. Anyone that will employ it in their lives can achieve excellence. This is God's desire for our lives. And I believe, at least to some extent, the formula for excellence, the formula that was used by Daniel and his homies is found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. And I believe that the practical understanding and application of this simple verse is the foundation to a life of excellence in service to God. I want to consider these two verses in doing something called phrasing, which is I want to encourage you, phrasing is an incredible way to study the Bible. Phrasing will really unlock revelation. It will unlock an understanding of Scripture that I haven't found any other way that does it. And it's not complicated. It's very simple. We're going to take these two verses and we're going to look at them in chunks. We're going to look at the simple phrases that make up these two verses and consider each of them by themselves. The first phrase is trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. How many know there's a lot of things you can trust in? There's a lot of things that people do trust in. People trust in money. People trust in their career. People trust in relationships. People trust in themselves. People trust in all kinds of things. Medicine. There's a lot of things that we can put our trust in. And if you answer these questions, this will tell you what you're putting your trust in. Who do you look to for answers? Who is it that you're looking to for help, 
for direction, for counsel, for advice. Who are you looking to or what are you looking to for satisfaction and joy and fulfillment and meaning in life? Because the answer to those questions will reveal what you're putting your trust in, what you're putting your confidence in, what you're relying upon to bring meaning and direction to your life. And this scripture very clearly admonishes us that there is only one thing we should put our trust in. The one thing we should be trusting in is the Lord, God himself. All of these other things will let you down. The one thing that will never let you down is God. That should be the source or the target of our trust, our confidence, our reliance. Trust in the Lord. The next phrase tells us how we are to trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And notice it says all thine heart. Not some of thy heart. Not even most of thy heart. But it says trust in the Lord with all of thine heart. This means that every area of your life is yielded to God. You don't have any area of life that you're holding back. Oh, I'll trust God in my money. I'll trust God in my career. I'll trust God in my marriage. I'll trust God here. But this area, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. We're told we, to, we need to trust him with all of thine heart. One commentary I read says, they trust not God at all that do not trust him alone. He that stands with one foot on a rock and another foot upon a quicksand will sink and perish as certainly as he that stands with both feet on the quicksand. We're commanded to trust God with all of our heart. There should be no area of our lives that we say to God, that's off limits. God, you can't speak to that area. God, I'm not going to yield that area. God, I'm not trusting that area to you. And we would never say that. We would never have God deal with us and say, no, God, you can't have that. But when we do that with our actions, isn't it the same thing? When God speaks to us and deals with us about something, we may not say no, but if we don't do it, isn't that the same thing? And so God says every area should be yielded. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Another thing to take note of here is that trust is a heart issue. Right? He says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Trust is not an issue of intellect. Trust is not an issue of understanding and comprehension. Trust is not an issue of, does it make sense? Trust is an issue of the heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That means trust comes down to a decision of the will, a choice. That we choose to trust and obey God. I remember my rag today. I think I have really bushy eyebrows, so they just sweat a lot. I don't know. And the glasses, they kind of hold the heat in, so, you know, excuse me. Did you see the drop of sweat just shoot down? Or? All right, hallelujah. 
The next phrase, lean not unto thine own understanding. And what this phrase does is it further clarifies that trusting in the Lord is the opposite of relying upon your own understanding. It says, lean not to your own understanding. In other words, don't lean on your own ability to figure things out. Don't lean on your own ability to comprehend. Don't lean on your own intelligence and your own wisdom and your own experience. Don't lean on those things more than you trust in God. Leaning on something means that you are relying on it to support and sustain you. And if it is removed, you fall. (laughs) How many ever leaned on something you shouldn't have leaned on? (laughs) If you're leaning on money, what happens when it is removed? If you're leaning on your career, what happens when you get laid off? If you're leaning on some relationship, what happens when that goes away? See, the admonition is to lean completely upon the Lord, not upon your own understanding, but lean upon Him. And then in verse 6, it continues, in all thy ways. Now, this is an interesting phrase because really this could mean two different things. In all thy ways first could mean Every area of life. God is interested in every area of life, in all thy ways. So even if there are areas of life that seem small and insignificant to you, that don't seem like a big deal, God is still interested in it. God is interested in every area of our lives. In all thy ways. The other meaning that could be here is wherever life takes you, whatever experiences you have, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, whatever obstacles you face, whatever victories you achieve, in all the various experiences of life, in all thy ways. And I believe the correct application really is a combination of both of these. Because how many know God is interested in every area of life? And God is interested in every experience of life, every circumstance that you could possibly find yourself in, whether it's the mountain peak or in the valley. God is interested in all thy ways. Acknowledge him. See, this is where we get some very practical application for what it means to trust God, what it means to lean upon God and not lean upon ourselves. Wherever we go, whatever we experience, whatever area of life we are thinking about or talking about, we are called to acknowledge Him. That word acknowledge, basically what it means is to a willingness to recognize God's authority over our lives, to recognize His, his Lordship, to recognize His power, His purpose, His will. The word in Hebrew literally means to know him, speaking about his nature, his character, his word, and it also means to own him. Basically, take all that we know about him and make it our own. 
what we know about his character, what we know about his promises, what we know about his word, we take all that we know of God and we own it. We make it our own. Reminds me of the scripture in Romans 13, verses 12 and 14. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. As in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That phrase, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what it's talking about, is clothing yourself with Jesus Christ, clothing yourself with his example, with his nature and his character. Acknowledging God means we govern and conduct ourselves in light of the revelation that we have of God. That He is God. That His Word has authority over my life. That God has a plan. God has a will. God has a desire for my life in this situation. Acknowledging Him means surrendering to that revelation. Daniel and his homies were a great example of this because everything that we know about their life all through Daniel 1 through 6 demonstrates this perfectly. They had an excellent spirit throughout everything that we know about them because they always, they trusted God. They honored God above everything else and they trusted the outcome to Him. Every area of life, even down to the food that they ate, the liquids that they drank. They were concerned in every area of life about what God thought. And they wanted to acknowledge and honor Him in every area. I want to close with this scripture, Colossians 3.23. This gives us some very practical approach to how we can apply this mindset to our lives. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. A couple of other translations. Whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly, as if you were doing it for the Lord and not for others. Another one. In all the work that you are doing, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for the Lord and not for people. Whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm, as to the Lord and not for people. So this verse and these different translations bring out the spirit that I believe if we will apply this spirit, this mentality to our lives, that we will see the blessing of God. We can begin to live out this foundational truth that will see a spirit of excellence in our lives that everything we do, whatever you're doing, whether you're preaching a sermon, teaching a Bible study, witnessing, cleaning the bathroom, teaching children, whatever it is, Whatever area of life, whether it's in the ministry, in the church, whether it's on your job, whether it's at home, that if you will embrace this mentality that I am doing what I am doing for Jesus Christ, when I finish this task, I'm going to present this to Jesus and say, Jesus, this represents how much I value you. This represents how much I honor you, how pleased I am to know you. If we will embrace that mentality that sets you up so that you can begin to live out this example that we read about with Daniel and his friends. And the promise that we have is that if we will live this way, if we will live with this foundation of excellence, 
Proverbs 3, verse 6 closes with the phrase, He shall direct thy paths. And this is the goal of every true Christian. What does God want for my life? What is the will of God? Where does God want me to go? What does God want me to do? And the promise here is that if we will live out this scripture, God says, I will direct your paths. I will guide you. I will show you the way. I will open the doors that need to be opened. I will close the doors that need to be closed. I will speak to you and show you the way. He will direct your path. And thank God for it. You know, a life of excellence is attainable for every person in this place because it is not based on us. It's not based on our ability. It is not based on anything we have to offer other than we can trust God. We can trust God, do the best that we can in whatever situation we're in to honor God, to do what we know God wants us to do. And when we live that way, the blessing of God will rest upon you. God says, I will direct your paths. Praise God. Let's bow our heads tonight in reverence to God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just for a moment. Hallelujah. Daniel and his friends were in this situation that we read about where they were taken captive. They were carried off to a pagan land and they were made to serve in this pagan kingdom as a result of the children of Israel and their sin against God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It brings a separation from God. And that was the experience that the children of Israel were having at that time, is the judgment of God, a separation from His favor. And that is the reason they were carried off captive and slaves. And that same truth exists spiritually for every single person that does not know Jesus Christ. The Bible says that your sin is holding you captive. Your sin is holding you as a slave. The Bible says the soul that sins is a slave to sin. There is nothing that you can do in and of yourselves to break free. You might be able to break certain habits, but you can never break the power of sin over your life by yourself. This is where the gospel message is so powerful. Jesus Christ took a punishment for sin that he did not deserve so that he could give you and I a freedom that we do not deserve. He could give us forgiveness and cleansing and deliverance in exchange for us simply choosing to yield our lives and give up our sin. And I wonder if there's anyone here tonight that has never experienced the wonderful joy of having your sins forgiven. You've never been born again. You've never made a decision, a personal decision to repent and turn away from your sin and surrender your life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. Maybe you know about Jesus. Maybe you even grew up in church. You've heard the gospel before, but if you're honest, you look inside your own heart, you say, you know what? I've never actually made a personal decision to surrender to Jesus. I've never been born again. That can change tonight. If there's anyone here tonight that has never been born again, you've never 
repented and surrendered to Jesus, but you want to do that tonight. God is dealing with you. God is tugging at your heart. Don't fight it. That's the love of God trying to save you. If anyone here tonight, raise your hand. We'll pray with you. Anyone here? Not saved, or maybe you're backslidden. Maybe you were saved at one time. You were living for God, but something pulled you away. Something came between you and God. And you examine your heart now. You say, you know what? I'm, I'm not living right. I'm not living the way God wants me to live. But I want to get it right. Tonight, I want to draw a line in the sand and say, no more. I'm done. I'm surrendering my life back to Jesus. If that's you, raise your hand. We'll pray with you tonight. Anyone here? Not saved, backslidden. You want to commit your life to Jesus. Praise God. Talk to Christians then. As I said at the beginning of this message, this message really was for me. God was really dealing with me and challenging me. It's so easy to just kind of get in a routine, to just kind of go through the motions and to be doing the things that you need to do, but you're not really doing it with an excellent spirit. You're not really doing it in a way that really reflects the honor and the reverence and the glory that God deserves. And God was really dealing with me about that. And I thank God for it. Because if we will commit ourselves to live like these Daniel Hebrew boys, say, you know what? It's not rocket science. Trust God. Put him first. In every situation, put him first. Do what he wants. Honor him. And the blessing and anointing of God can rest upon you. Praise God. These altars are open tonight. If you want to come, spend some time seeking God, I encourage you to do that as we sing and worship God tonight.